Chapter 5 of The Life Story of a Black Bear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by CDOP7 from Cincinnati, Ohio. The Life Story of a Black Bear by Harry Perry Robinson. Chapter 5 I Lose a Sister. We soon found that the country which we were now in was simply full of animals. Of course it had had its share of inhabitants before the fire, and, in addition, all those that fled before the flames had crowded into it, besides which the beasts of prey from all directions were drawn towards the same place by the abundance of food, which was easy to get. We heard terrible stories of sufferings and narrow escapes, and the poor deer especially, when they had at last won to a place of safety from the flames, were generally so tired and so bewildered that they fell an easy prey to the pumas and wolves. All night long the forest was full of the yelping of the coyotes reveling over the bodies of animals that the larger beasts had killed and only partly eaten. And every creature seemed to be quarreling with those of its kind, the former inhabitants of the neighborhood resenting the intrusion of the newcomers. For ourselves, nobody attacked us. We found two other families of bears quite close to us, but though we did not make friends at first, they did not quarrel with us. We were glad enough to live in peace and to be able to devote ourselves to learning something about the new country. In general, it was very much like the place we had left. The same succession of mountain after mountain, all densely covered with trees, and the streams winding up down through Gulchin Valley. The stream that we had followed was now a river, broader all along its course than the beaver's pool, which had saved our lives, and at one place, about two miles beyond the end of the burn region, it passed through a valley, wider than any that I had seen, with an expanse of level land on either side. Here it was, on this level bottom land, that I first tasted what are, I think, next to honey, of all wild things, the greatest treat that a bear knows, ripe blueberries. But this berry patch, as we called it, was to play a very important part in my life, and I must explain. We had soon learned that we were now almost in the middle of men. There was the party which had passed us going up the stream into the burned country. There were two more log houses about a mile from the edge of the burned country, and therefore also behind us. There were others further down the stream, and almost every day men passed either up or down the river, going from one set of houses to another. Finally, we heard, and before we had been there a week, saw with our own eyes, that only some ten miles further on, where our stream joined another and made a mighty river, there was a town, which had all sprung up since last winter, in which hundreds of men lived together. This was the great drawback of our new home. But if we went further on, the chances were that we should only come to more and more men, and for the present, by lying up most of the day and only going out at night in the direction of their houses, there was no difficulty in keeping away from them. Familiarity with them, indeed, had lessened our terror. We certainly had no desire to hurt them, and as they passed up and down or went about their work, digging in the ground along the side of the river or chopping down trees, appeared to give no thought to us, and with that fear removed, even though we kept constantly on the alert, lest they should unexpectedly come too near us, our life was happy and free from care. Father and mother grew to be more like their old selves again, less gruff and nervous than they had been since the memorable day when we saw Sinman with his broken leg. And as for Kawa and me, though we romped less than we used to, for we were seven months old now, and at seven months a bear is getting to be a big and serious animal, we were as happy as two young bears could be. After a long hot day, during which we had been sleeping in the shade, 
What could be more delightful than to go and lie on the cool stream, where it flowed only a foot or so deep, and as clear as the air itself over a firm and sandy bottom? There were frogs and snails and beetles of all sorts along the water's edge, and the juicy stems of the reeds and water plants. Then, in the night, we wandered about finding lily roots, and the sweet ferns and camas and mushrooms, with another visit to the river in the early morning, and perhaps a trout to wind up with before the sun drove us under cover again. And above all, there was the berry patch. The mere smell of a berry patch at the end of summer, when the sun has been beating down all day so that the air is heavy with the scent of the cooking fruit, is delicious enough, but it is nothing to the sweetness of the berries themselves. It was in the evening, after our dip in the river, when twilight was shading into night, that we used to visit the patch. It was a great open space in a bend of the river, half a mile long and nearly as wide, without a tree on it, and nothing but the berry bushes growing close together all over it, reaching about up to one's chest as one walked through, and every bush loaded with berries. Not only we, but every bear in the neighborhood used to go there each evening, the two other families of whom I have spoken, and also two other single he-bears who had no families. One of these bears was the only animal in the neighborhood, except for the porcupines, which every bear hates, whom I disliked and feared. He was a bad-tempered beast, bigger than father, with whom at a first meeting he wanted to pick a quarrel while making friends with mother. She, however, would not have anything to say to him. When he was getting ready to fight my father, walking sideways at him and snarling, while my father, I am bound to confess, backed away, mother did not say a word, but went straight at him as she had rushed at the puma the day when she had saved my life. Then father jumped at him also, and between them they bundled him along till he fairly took to his heels and ran. But whenever he met us after that, and we saw him every evening at the patch, he snarled viciously at us, and I at least was careful to keep father and mother between him and me. If he had caught any of us alone, I believe he would have killed us, so we took care that he never should. I can see the berry patch now, lying white and shining in the moonlight, with here and there, round the edges, and even sometimes pretty well out in the middle, if the night was not too light, the black spots showing where the bears were feeding. We enjoyed our feast in silence, and beyond the occasional snapping of a twig, or the cry of some animal from the forest, or the screech of a passing owl, there was not a sound but that of our own eating. One night, however, there came an interruption. It was bright moonlight, and we were reveling in our enjoyment of the fruit. The father was curiously restless. The air was very still, but in a little gust of wind early in the evening, father declared that he had smelled man. As an hour passed and there was no further sign of him, however, we forgot him in the delight of the ripe berries. Suddenly, from the other side of the patch, nearly half a mile away from us, rang out the awful voice of the thunderstick. We did not wait to see what was happening, but made at all speed for the shelter of the trees, and tore up on the mountain slope. There was no further sound, but we did not dare to go back to the patch that night, nor did we see any other bears, so that it was not until some days afterward that we had heard that the thunderstick had very nearly killed the mother of one of the other families. It had cut a deep wound in her back, and she had saved herself only by plunging into the woods. If we had known all this that time, I doubt we should have gone back to the berry patch as we did the very next night. On our way to the patch, we met the bad-tempered bear coming away from it. That was curious, and if it had been anyone else, we should undoubtedly have asked him why he was leaving the feast at that time in the evening. Had we done so, it might have saved a lot of trouble. As it was, we only snarled back at him as he passed snarling by us, and went on our way. We were very careful, however, and took a long time to make our way out of the trees down to the edge of the bushes. 
but there was no sound to make us uneasy, nor any smell of man in such a wood below. Of course, we took care to approach the patch from the furthest point from where we had heard the thunder stick on the night before. It was a cloudy night, and the moon shone only at intervals. Taking advantage of a passing cloud, we slipped out from the cover of the trees into the blueberry bushes. We could see no other bears, but they might be hidden by the clouds. In a minute, however, the moon shone out, and had there been any others there, at least as far out from the edge as ourselves, we must have been able to see them. Certainly, alas, we were seen, for even as I was looking around the patch in the first ray of moonlight to see if any of our friends were there, the thunderstick rang out again, and once more we plunged for the trees. Well, this time the sound was much nearer, and there was a second report before we were well into the shadow, and then a third. So terrified were we that there was no thought of stopping. But after we got into the woods, we kept on as fast as we could go, father and mother in front, I next, and Kawa behind, and none of us looked back, for we heard the shouts of men and the crashing of branches as they ran, and again and again the thunderstick spoke. Suddenly, I became aware that Kawa was not behind me. I stopped and looked round, but she was nowhere to be seen. I remembered having heard her give a sudden squeal, as if she had trodden on something sharp, but I paid no attention to it at the time. Now I became frightened and called to father and mother to stop. They were a long way ahead, and it was some time before I could get near enough to attract their attention and tell them that Kawa was missing. Mother wished to charge straight down the hill again at the men, thundersticks or no thundersticks. But father dissuaded her, and at last we began to retrace our steps cautiously, keeping our ears and noses open for any sign either of Kawa or of man. As we came near the edge of the wood, noses reached us, shouts and stamping, and then, mixed with the other sounds, I clearly heard Kawa's voice. She was crying in anger and pain, as if she was fighting and fighting desperately. A minute later, we were near enough to see, and a miserable sight it was that we saw. Out in the middle of the berry patch, in the brilliant moonlight, was poor Kawa with four men. They had fastened ropes around her, and two of them at the end of one rope on the one side, and two at the end of one on the other, were dragging her across the middle of the patch. She was fighting every inch of the way, but her struggles against the four men were useless, and slowly, yard by yard, she was being dragged away from us. But if she could not fight four men, could not we? There were four of us, and I said so to my father, but he only grunted and reminded me of the thundersticks. It was only too true. Without the thundersticks, we should have had no difficulty in meeting them, but with those weapons in their hands, it would only be sacrificing our lives in vain to attempt a rescue. So there we had to stand and watch, my mother all the time whimpering, and my father growling and sitting up on his haunches and rubbing his nose in his chest. We dared not go show ourselves in the open, so we followed the edge of the patch, keeping alongside of the men, but in the shadow of the trees. They pulled Kawa across the middle of the patch into the woods on the other side and began to go to the river bank, where we knew there began an open path which the men had beaten in going to and from their houses half a mile further on. Here there were several houses in a bunch together. Inside one of these they shut her, and all went to the other house themselves. We stayed around, and two or three times later on, we saw one or more of the men come out and stand for a while at Kawa's door listening. But at last they had come out no more, and we saw the lights go out on their house, and we knew that the men had gone to sleep. Then we crept down cautiously, till we could hear Kawa whimpering and growling through the walls. My mother spoke to her and there was silence for a moment, and then, when Mother spoke again, the poor little thing recognized her voice and squealed with delight. But what could we do? We talked to her for a little while, and tried to scratch the earth away from round the wall in the hope of getting at her, 
but it was all useless. And as the day began to dawn, nothing remained but to make off before the men arose and to crawl away to hide ourselves in the woods again. What a wretched night that was. Hitherto, I do not think that I had thought much of Kawa. I had taken her as a matter of course, played with her and quarreled with her by turns, without stopping to think of what life might be without her. But now I thought of it, and as I lay awake through the morning, I realized how much she had been to me, and wondered what the men would do to her. Most of all, I wondered why they should have wanted to catch her at all. We had no wish to do them any harm. We were nobody's enemy. Least of all was little Kawa. Why could not men live in peace with us, as if we were willing to live in peace with them? Long before it was dusk next evening, we were in the woods as near the men's houses as we dared to go, but we could hear no sound of my sister's voice. There appeared to be only one man about the place, and he was at work chopping wood until just at sunset when the other three men came back from down the stream, and we noticed that they carried long ropes slung over their arms. Were those the ropes with which they had dragged Kawa the night before? If so, had they again, while we slept, dragged her off somewhere else? We feared it must be so. Impatiently, we waited until it was dark enough to trust ourselves in the open near the houses, and then we soon knew that our fears were justified. The door of the house in which Kawa had been shut was open. The men went in and out of it, and evidently Kawa was not there, nor was there any trace of her about the buildings. So, under my father's guidance, we started on the path down the stream by which the three men had returned, and it was not long before we found the marks of where she had struggled against her captors. And in place, the scent of her trail was still perceptible, in spite of the strong man smell which pervaded the beaten path. So we followed the trail down until we came to more houses, then made a circuit and followed on again, still finding evidence that she had passed. Soon we came to more houses at ever-shortening intervals, until the banks of the stream on both sides were either continuously occupied by houses or showed traces of men being constantly at work there. And beyond was the town itself. It was of no use to go further. In the town we could see lights streaming from many of the buildings, and the shouting of men's voices came to our ears. We wandered around the outskirts of the town until it was daylight, and then drew back into the hills and lay down again, very sad and hungry, for we had hardly thought of food, and very lonesome. Kawa, we felt sure, was somewhere among the houses in the town, but that was little comfort to us, and all the time we wondered what man wanted with her, and why he could not have left us to be happy as we had been before he came. End of chapter 5 Recording by C-Dob7 from Cincinnati, Ohio.